WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. Today on the show, we hear election prep stories, talk about the Hunger Dialogues event, preview the East Lansing Film Festival, and prepare for No Shave November with the Great American Fierce Beard Organization and the Beardsmen of MSU. But first, these headlines. According to Examiner.com, the Gallup poll has Obama and Romney tied. The poll released today shows the candidates are even at 48%. Today, the AP reported that uh, the FBI is being sued by the family of Lukman Abdullah, a Detroit mosque leader, who was shot during a raid. Abdullah's family says his rights were violated when the FBI tried to arrest him in 2009. He was accused of dealing stolen goods. The Michigan Attorney General and the U.S. Justice Department's of the U.S. Uh, Justice Department Civil Rights Division also found no wrongdoings. The lawsuit was filed on Friday, accusing the FBI of excessive force in Abdullah's death. He was shot. 20 times. Hurricane Sandy touched down on the East Coast last night, killing at least 33 people in the United States and one in Canada, according to CNN.com. Millions are without power and extreme flooding has hit homes and the New York subway system. All the way in East Lansing, we are also feeling the effects of Sandy. Showers and wind Showers with wind and temperatures in the upper 30s can be expected for the rest of the night. Tomorrow, temps for Halloween are expected to be in the lower 40s with light showers all day and gusts of wind reaching 25 miles per hour. Later on exposure, what role candidates' physical features play in the election and tales of haunted halls here on campus. But first, Gabby Saldivia reports on the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act. The passing of this legislation will directly affect MSU and Lansing community. I woke up at the crack of dawn one Friday this past September to attend the Statewide Immigrant Rights Summit put on by the Michigan Coalition of Immigrant and Refugee Rights. Today's conference is hosted by the Michigan Coalition for I went to cover the event, get a few interviews, and find out who and why people were attending. But instead, I discovered a story. At the summit, I found a political issue merging with a social one. The controversial and upcoming reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. For the past several months, the U.S. Congress has been debating the renewal of the act that provides protection through funding, access to legal aid, and various relief programs for victims of violence. The outcome of months of debate has led to two different versions of the bill. One is the Senate and one is the House. The major difference between the bills is that the House's version strips protection from immigrants, LGBT, and Native American victims. Since it was passed in 1994, VAWA has been, for the most part, bipartisan. However, this year's 2012 renewal is different because some feel political parties are getting in the way. Veronica Thronson, an assistant professor of clinical law and director of the MSU College of Law Immigration Clinic, said protection VAWA provides directly affects her clients. She said it upsets her that this is becoming a party issue and not about the victims. So many people could actually benefit from this relief, you know, from this uh, uh, provision of the law. And just to think that they have turned the whole domestic violence into a political issue, like, oh, you only want, you know, to help immigrants or, you know, or that's not true. Domestic violence is, is not a problem in the United States. That's that's really wrong. 
So our job, not only to try to help uh, victims, but also to educate the, the public so they know that there is something out there that could affect the community as a whole. It's not only bringing awareness, but also we need to make sure that our representatives are accountable for, for the community they claim to represent. Michigan Representative John Conyers, who helped draft the original bill in 1994, doesn't think that the issue is one of dividing parties. Even the Republican leaders uh, have supported this bill. It's been fairly bipartisan uh, all the way. The bipartisanship uh, hasn't been lost, and we're not in a, uh, a deadlock because of the partisanship. Conyers said at the moment Congress is in a lame duck session and that the bill is at a standstill. He is disappointed in the current situation because he believes it needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. It's really uh, sad because I think uh, violence against women that needs uh, support immediately. And I'm not excited about the uh, fact that we'll be in a, a lame duck session where there'll be probably some other emergencies that we haven't even uh, faced up to yet. Congressmen and immigration lawyers are not the only ones affected by this legislation. Erica Schmidt-Dale, who is an advocacy coordinator for MSU Safe Place, the domestic violence shelter on MSU's campus, spends five days a week providing support for survivors of domestic violence. Schmidt-Dale said MSU Safe Place does not currently receive funding from VAWA, but that it would be significantly affected by the outcome of the reauthorization. Our shelter doesn't receive the funding, um, but... Uh, it could affect other programs that we work with. So, you know, they're not getting the funding that they need, and then they're looking to us to help fill the gap. And that could be difficult on us when we're already doing all that we can to, to serve the community. As of right now, both versions of the bill are pending. Thronson said she believes that the bill that originated in the Senate has better protection for victims, but that it is still not sufficient. If the bill that originated in the House was passed, Thronson said she hopes the next step would be to push the White House to ensure that the president would veto the bill. If the president were to sign it, I would have to tell my clients, I'm sorry, you don't qualify because I wouldn't put my clients at risk. It's just so difficult to tell people, yes, we have, we used to have these provisions and now we don't. So I, I cannot even imagine how many people will be left out. Reporting for Impact, I'm Gabriela Saldivia. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. As the U.S. prepares to elect the next president, it's essential to know where to vote. Impact's Anjana Schrader spoke with representatives from the spoke with a representative from the UVote campaign here on campus. My name is Nate Credit, and I'm the advisor for student-led initiatives in the Center for Service Learning and Civic Engagement. Credit is also involved in UVote, a nonpartisan voting initiative that informs MSU students about voting and everything that comes with that, including locations and sample ballots. There's 17 locations throughout the, the city, both on campus and off. Students who live on campus don't have to worry about driving all the way to their hometowns to vote if they're registered in East Lansing. We do have voting locations on campus at um, Brody Hall, um, Abbott, West Acres, um, Wilson, and People's Church um, on Grand River. These polling locations work the same as others around the nation. Statewide, um, the polls are open in every single precinct from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. As long as you're in line by 8 p.m., um, you'll be allowed to vote. 
The ballot this year is two pages long, and credit recommends students get informed before making decisions at the polls. He says UVote's website makes it easy for students to prepare. There's actually a button that you can click on and pull up your exact ballot that you're going to see on Election Day. Um, and then you can actually print it off and um, use that to do research on candidates or proposals, decide how you're going to vote, um, and bring it in as sort of a cheat sheet. Still feeling like you have no idea? Whether you live on campus or off, um, you can go to uvote.msu.edu and you'll be able to pull up exactly where you vote, um, what's on your ballot, the hours, all of that information. For Impact Exposure, I'm Anjana Schrader. You're listening to Impact Exposure on Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. As we enter into the Thanksgiving season, many Americans are looking forward to lavish meals on Turkey Day, while around the world, one in seven people go to bed hungry every night, according to Oxfam America. This November, the MSU students will have the chance to rethink their role in the food system through the Residential College of Arts and Humanities Hunger Dialogue Series. Here to talk about the event, fourth-year RCH student Julia Kramer and Residential College of Arts and Humanities Communication Manager Kate, uh, Katie uh, Whitner. I think I got it, right? Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Exposure. Thank you for Hello. having us. Yeah. Uh, so first, explain uh, what the high Hunger Dialogues are and how did this event um, come to be? Sure. Um, well, we were, we were sort of inspired by the Oxfam model of the Hunger Banquet, um, which is you, you come to the event, um, you're expecting to get a meal, and you get placed into three different categories. Um, <clears throat> and you get um, you either just get rice if you're in the sort of third world poor category. You can get rice and beans um, or some sort of protein if you're in the middle category. And then just one or two people in the room get the full meal. So it sort of explores the the economic disparities throughout the world um, through food. And so we we're inspired by that, but we wanted to sort of put the ARCA twist on it um, and talk more about culture and food traditions. So we're going to have the same sort of thing where uh, folks come in, get a meal. Um, we're going to have three different categories. Um, but instead of doing the economic disparities, we're going to do three different regions of the world, and we're um, presenting uh, family meals in, in lieu of Thanksgiving being so close. And uh, so beyond uh, Thanksgiving being close, why did you choose family meals? Is it just to tie in with that, or do you think um, you'll have a different dialogue because of that aspect of it? Yeah, we thought it would make it... Um, it would make it easier for people to relate to the topic and, and to easier to spark discussion if we started off with the family meal. People always have stories to tell about their family getting together, and everyone, every family, it seems like, has their own food traditions of, you know, who prepares the meal, who cleans up afterwards, um, you know, those sorts of things. So it seemed like a good way to, to spark discussion with participants that come. Um, and, you know, around the world, different different meals are structured different ways and families are structured different ways. So it seems like a good starting off point to talk about different cultures. So this event, is, it's a little dramatic. Um, it's got some kind of theatrics to it. Um, why do you think it's more impactful rather than just, you know, going out and saying uh, there's a food crisis in the world, there, there's people starving? Why is this doing an event like this more impactful or, or is it more impactful? Um, well, you know, I've been um, at the ARCA for a fraction of the time that Julia has, but one of the things that I think has been um, sort of a, a continual reminder to me as I've been there is that conversation and um, understanding uh, these sort of huge issues that it's difficult to take, um, you know, a small section of these and even 
fully understand what they mean um, until people have the opportunity to talk about them and understand what the person sitting across the table from them thinks about it. Um, and one of the things that we're really excited about with this event is that people will be arriving and then um, not necessarily sitting with the person they came with or sitting with a group of friends um, or someone who they already know their viewpoints of, um, but they'll be sitting and having these um, conversations with people who might think differently them from might think differently from them, might um, have different experiences, might be from somewhere else, might have um, insight into something that they haven't considered. So I think that conversation is really going to be yeah. you know, hugely beneficial. Yeah, and one of the, one of the main objectives of this dialogue um, is to shift the focus away from um, just economic disparities to cultural differences. Um, and that even though people in other regions of the world are hungry, even though people are hungry here, we all... For some reason, humans come together for these holiday meals, and they want to invest in these holiday meals, even if in, in other times of the year they don't have as much food. Um, and we sort of want to explore that and why that is. Um, do you think that students kind of have a, a blasé attitude about the fact that, that there's hunger out there? Is it, do you think that it's not something that's on our, our minds enough? Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel that sometimes. Um, I, I think... In, in the ARCA, we're sort of in this this bubble where we're used to talking about deep issues and we're used to sort of having these these very meaningful conversations almost too much. Like, all the time, <laughs> you're, you're beaten down with these things. But, um, yeah, we're, we're hoping to get some students from other parts of campus and even some faculty members from other parts of campus or even, you know, it's open to the public as well. So um, we're hoping to get some different perspectives in so that... Um, it's not just ARCA students who are already used to having deep conversations, but um, we want to explore these issues with, with other sorts of people with different perspectives as well. And now this, uh, this event is limited uh, space-wise, so yep. it's 100 a, a people, um, and what, what do they have to do to come? Um, we have, I think, 115 slots. There are 59 or 60 left, so we already have um, a lot of people that have signed up. You do have to RSVP. Um, on on Eventbrite, which is a, a website, and you can get there from the ARCA website, um, or you can just Google it. Um, so it's pretty easy to find. And, um, and yeah, uh, you do have to RSVP so that we know how many people to make food for and have enough seats for, and um, that's how you do it. Uh, so this is, is this event also part of a research project for some students in the RCAH? Um, how, I guess, how did the students come uh, to the... How did they decide to put this event on? Right. I don't think any of us is doing a larger research project out of this, but um, so the the student committee that's in charge of, of the event were sort of handpicked um, by the dean, and, and they the dean had a has a committee of, of staff members that are involved, and then they sort of chose students who are interested in stuff like this. Um, I'm really interested in food systems and food in general, um, so... <laughs> You know, we just kind of all came, and then if people were just expressed interest, then we all sort of came together organically. It wasn't really, um, there wasn't really a process laid out for this sort of thing. It's kind of new, so. Um, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, the idea is to generate this dialogue. What are some of the the conversations that you hope people leave this event with, or some of the thoughts that they leave with? Yeah, um, we're hoping, especially... Especially going home for Thanksgiving, we're hoping to sort of send students home feeling reflective and um, really reflecting on their own food traditions and their own um, 
American food traditions in contrast with other places, but also compared to other places, and sort of maybe feeling more unified with other cultures, um, and not feeling guilty for what other people are lacking, but feeling enlightened um, and feeling, you know, reflective of their own cultures and of other people's. Can you talk a little bit at all about what you guys are going to serve? Uh, I'm just, um, I guess I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. We're, we're keeping it a little bit hush-hush. Um, okay. <laughs> we want to we have a little bit of an element of surprise when people come in. We're going to be randomly selecting um, the three different groups. And I can say we're doing three different countries um, from different regions of the world. Um, the food is going to be very diverse, um, and it's going to be really good, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, everyone is going to get a full meal. It's not the same set up as the Oxfam banquet where you're not sure if you're going to be getting a full meal or not. Everyone's getting a full meal. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it's going to be three different diverse meals and, and, you know, we want to kind of keep it, keep it, keep it a surprise for the people who all come. All right. All right. Hush, hush. Uh, <laughs> oh, and I was going to say, we've been actually, um, when you said research before, I, I thought a little bit of MSU culinary services. Yeah. They have been taking these menu items and taking, um, you know, sort of these ideas and doing research of their own and have been really excited and um, encouraging about diving into how to prepare this particular menu and saying, you know, what do we do with this particular grain or how do we prepare it? Yeah. Um, so that's been... It's kind of an experience for everyone. Exploring experience. Exactly. Now this is the first in a series. Are you guys looking to do more events? Um, Hopefully. Uh, We're focusing on this one and we're going to kind of see how it goes. It looks like it's, it might be, um, it might be successful um, as of now. So we're hoping to do another one in the spring and um, then most of the committee members will be graduating. So maybe we can um, recruit some more people to, to help out in the future to do some more. In the next one, we're hoping to go more on the institutional level of meals, maybe focusing on lunch meals in, in um, the school system, school setting. Um, the food bank. The, yeah, maybe maybe teaming up with the, with the food, food bank and with the food bank in Lansing, and I'm um, talking about Lansing school meals, so maybe bringing it a little bit bigger than the family table, kind of inching Expanding. outwards to the global setting. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you both so much for coming on and talking about this event today. And uh, that event is on Monday, November 19th, uh, in the Snyder Phillips Hall, where the Residential College of Arts and Humanities is located. Once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you. you. And if you want to find out more information, you can go to rch.msu.edu and search for Hunger Dialogues. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. This year marks the East Lansing Film Festival's 15th year. Here to discuss what movie aficionados can expect from this year's festivities is Susan Woods, the festival's director and founder. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what can people uh, expect from this year's festival? Anything new? Uh, and Well, I mean, every film is new. I mean, nobody's <laughs> seen them. So um, we're going to be opening on November 7th, which is a week from tomorrow, uh, at the Hannah Community Center. We're showing the most unbelievable documentary. It's called Searching for Sugar Men, and it's about a Detroit musician. I, I don't want to even tell the whole story, but I mean, it's just um, Google it and find out because it's really a an incredible film about this Detroit musician who in the 70s was known as the Urban Dylan. And um, his films, I mean, his uh, music was critically loved, but never went anywhere. So then he went into oblivion and there were rumors that he had set himself on fire on the stage. So somehow a bootleg copy got to South Africa and got radio time and became the national anthem of apartheid. <laughs> and more people had the album than any other, than Beatles or Elvis, and sold millions of copies. So then these people went looking for them, and... Um, and then that's the movie, looking for, searching for, searching for sugar, and, um, and it's great music. Very, very interesting. Uh, and so, uh, beyond documentary films, uh, what feature films are oh, you looking forward to this year? Lots and lots. Um, there is "Take This Waltz" with Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman and Michelle Williams, and it's directed by Sarah Pauly, and it's just a, it's, it's all about a, a woman who has the conflict of being having been married young and then being attracted to another man. And Michelle Williams does a great job. Um, there is a, another uh, film called Headhunters, which is really, it's a thriller. It is um, based on Joe Nesbo's thrillers. I don't know if you know him, but he's sort of like, you know who Stieg Larsson is. He did all the, yeah. well, yes. this is the Norwegian version. And <laughs> it is funny and it is by the seat of your pants and it's just it's just a great film and uh then there's a sexy little coming of age called turn me on damn it and it's it's from uh norway also and it is i mean it is a fun film so those are just a few and a lot of documentaries there's one on the the best um sushi chef in the world in Japan, there's another one on Bob Marley. There's another one on technology that's called Connected that is just so fun. Um, there's one on Queen of Versailles about this woman who, well, this couple. Rebuilding. Just, yes. Rebuilding to to Versailles. house in, in the United States, 90,000 square feet. And then the economic downturn 
ruin them and you follow it. I mean, it's it's almost like real time. It's pretty amazing. It's riveting. You can't keep your eyes off of it. So So those are just a few. It sounds like you have a a good mix of international and nationally acclaimed films. What about some local films that people might be able to see? Yes, well, we do have an enormous... Um, love for local films. And so we have the Lake Michigan Film Competition, which is all day Sunday. And those are um, films, we award films um, that are made in the states that border Lake Michigan. So it also includes Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. And um, they're wonderful films. I mean, they are... uh, you know, they're up-and-coming films. There are a lot of films made by MSU students. Um, there are short films, documentary films, feature films. So it's a whole smorgasbord. It's really fun. Now, we were talking uh, very briefly before the interview. This is the 15th year. Um, yeah. And I guess what does it feel like to come from where you've started to be here um, 15 years later with this really successful and, and kind of uh, big annual event? Well, I mean, it's 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 an enormous sense of accomplishment. Um, one great thing about a film festival is that it's very organic. It's different every year. You have no control over it, and uh, you know, it's it's it just to me, it just gets better and better. Like I'm very proud of the um, program, which is printed by um, and an insert in the City Pulse of this week. And um, I think it's going to reach a lot more people. Um, I I love that the technology has matured so that now, you know, we could play uh, digital films. The projection is really good at Wells Hall. Um, all of that is such an ease compared to my first film, film festival. festival. Whoa, thirty-five millimeter and sixteen millimeter. Now, you've mentioned um, advances in technology, and going online and looking at your website, it's pretty interactive. It looks like you can uh, plan your schedule and and rate things. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that implementation uh, and using that? Well, it's a wonderful program that started by Festival Genius, and a lot of many, many, and it's um, designed completely for film festivals. So uh, we have been using it for at least four years because it's just, as you said, it's interactive. Um, the directors and filmmakers can go in and um, uh, change whatever they want. If they don't like the photo we chose, they can put another one. They can put in comments. People can create a buzz about a film. It's just a wonderful product. Why is it important? Why are film festivals important? What What is someone going to get going to a film festival versus, you know, going to the cinema, uh, the typical cinema on a Friday night? <laughs> um, probably the the best is that you will see films, especially at the East Lansing Film Festival, you will see films that will never reach those theaters. Um, those theaters have now become very... Um, studio-oriented, very big blockbuster-oriented, and these are what are known as art house films or independent films. Um, They're usually much more um, intellectual and stimulating, and um, uh, they're just a much different film type than than you would ever find in, in the theaters nowadays. 
So for this festival, um, you get, you're showing at several different locations. Where can people, um, where are the different locations people can go for? Well, opening festivals? night and closing night are going to be at the Hannah Community Center. Uh, Thursday night classic will be at Conrad Hall. We're showing The Godfather, the original. It's been 40 years, including um, an alum from MSU who's James Kahn who was in the film. Um, and then we move over to Wells Hall. We use all the four odds there. And we transform the entire um, B-wing of, of Wells Hall into this lovely festive with fresh popcorn and posters and ushers and everything else. So it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful event. Um. How do you choose the films for the festival? Are you the sole one responsible for what you guys decide oh, no, no, to play, no, no. or how does that? No, then uh, it'd work? be the Susan W. Woods <laughs> Film Festival. No, no, I um, we have two film selection committees: one for the Lake Michigan Film Competition, and one for uh, what we call the Maine Film Festival. But the you know it's part of it. But um, and. But a lot of the films that are sort of bigger and independent, those I go to different film festivals to um, research them and see them and then try to program them. So it's a mixture of the two. And is there any, I know you've mentioned a lot of uh, different films that you're going to play, but is there any one film in particular that you just cannot wait uh, to see? Well, there are two. I mean, Searching for Sugarman, which I've already seen, but I can't wait to see see again. I mean, if you're from Michigan or if you love music, this is the film. And then the second one is the closing night film, which was it's called The Untouchables, not not, you know, Ness and and what's his name? Who was in that? Oh, what's his name? I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. Don't, we'll move on. The Untouchables, which is a French film, biggest blockbuster in Europe. It is as I say, you know, end the film festival with a smile on your face and maybe a little tear in your eye. That's the kind of film it is. It is very uplifting and loving, and it's about an aristocratic um, quadriplegic who needs to have a, an assistant. And he ends up hiring an ex-con who's a Muslim and black. And it is just, you know, the comparison of the two, but they just... They um, become fast, fast friends, and it's a, it's just a wonderful, funny film. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing all this wonderful information uh, with us, Susan. Oh, you're so welcome, Emmanuel. So, uh, thank the, you for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. The film festival starts next week, uh, running from November 7th through the 15th. To find out more about the film festival, you can go to ELFF.com. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building without all that smoking. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Manuel Berry, and you're listening to Exposure. For the past year, the presidential elections have dominated headlines, but Impact contributor Thea Card wants to make sure voters aren't surprised when they receive a two-page ballot in the booth next week. Here's Thea Card breaking down Michigan's ballot proposals. It's election year, and as a student, I feel like young people get a bad rap. It's apparently common knowledge that young people, particularly college students, don't vote. However, the biggest problem I see with voters of any age is confusion about ballot proposals. And you know what? That might be true. Maybe college students don't vote. Some of y'all feel that your vote won't count or your physics homework is more important. And that might be true for your immediate future. But even if you don't believe that your vote will impact the national election, your vote might affect the way that proposals turn out. These proposals are just as important as the decisions of who will run our country, and I must admit I had no idea what they were until a couple weeks ago. Neither do most of the people I know. Well, let's break it down. Proposal 1 Petition seeks to invoke the right of referendum for emergency financial manager law 2011 PA4. Translation, the law right now gives the governor the ability to appoint an emergency financial manager to a city if there's a financial emergency. This person would run the city, create city budgets, hire and fire people, essentially do whatever the governor feels would help get said city back on track. So if you believe the governor should have this ability, vote yes. However, if you believe that those roles should be left to the appointed city councils, then vote no. Proposal 2. Giving the right of collective bargaining to public and private employees. This is probably the most talked about proposal on the ballot. That one is pretty straightforward. Labor unions exist to make sure workers get the wages, compensations, benefits, and rights that they deserve. If you want to give teachers, auto workers, and firefighters bargaining rights, then vote yes. If not, vote no. Proposal 3. This would amend the Michigan Constitution to require utilities to get at least 25% of their electricity from clean renewable energy sources. In other words, although Michigan is doing all right in the world of renewable energy, we currently are on track to meet our 2015 goal, the U.S. Energy Information Administration found that Michigan only gets 3.6% of our energy from renewable resources. The majority, 59%, come from coal. However, the real issue lies in the fact that the state constitution will be amended. 
Is a proposal involving energy mandates the proper place to change our constitution? So vote yes if you want to mandate Michigan utilities get 25% from renewable resources. However, if you don't want the state constitution to change, vote no. Proposal 4. Amends the Michigan Constitution to establish the Michigan Quality Home Council. Currently, there is a federally funded program called Home Help Services, which helps elderly and disabled people in Michigan with in-home assistance, household chores, personal care, etc. The proposal will establish health care workers as public employees so that they can join unions, but they can't strike. However, the Michigan Quality Home Council will make sure that those going into homes are qualified. So this one's crazy convoluted. If you truly want collective bargaining, this proposal is not it. But it does offer home care regulation. Proposal 5. Requires a two-third majority vote in the legislature or a statewide vote of the people to raise taxes any taxes. So on the one hand, it's great that politicians want to let people of Michigan have the right to vote on these taxes. But on the other hand, it could easily be used as a sort of tax filibuster. Proposal 6. This proposal is strange. Essentially, the proposal will require another election in which the people of Michigan will be able to choose whether or not we can build a new bridge to Canada. This one is important to understand. You're not voting yes or no for a new bridge. You're voting for the ability to choose whether you want to have a new bridge. You're voting to vote. If you want the people of Michigan to choose whether we get another bridge, vote yes. If you want them to go ahead and build, vote no. There. Now you know. There are six proposals, and now you know what they are. However, if you're still confused or you want more information, there's a list of the proposals and their breakdowns at the Citizen Research Council of Michigan's website. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, Impact Exposure. Presidential candidates have spent months trying to sway voters through debates over topics such as foreign policy and health care. But for some voters, how a candidate looks is just as important as what they say. Impact's Carmen Shrug reports. Voting for a presidential candidate depends on many factors, such as the person's morality and experience. However, a less critical but more apparent factor could be a candidate's appearance. 
According to a 2005 study by Princeton psychologist Alexander Todorov, people make inferences from facial appearances of candidates, and those inferences have selective effects on deciding who wins. For instance, attractiveness of candidates puts them in a more favorable position. Professor of Advertising, Public Relations, and Retailing at Michigan State, Bruce Vandenberg, says physical characteristics play a role in winning debates. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. A classic example, Kennedy versus Nixon. People who listen to it on the radio had an entirely different impression of who won. They thought Richard Nixon won. People who watched it on TV, because most people thought John F. Kennedy was more attractive, and Nixon was sweating, and he had a beard that showed up on TV and everything, that uh, Kennedy won. And Kennedy probably won largely because he was more attractive or had more sex appeal than Nixon did. Vandenberg adds that with current presidential candidates, Obama and Romney, age affects how constituents vote. So if you look at attractiveness and so on as maybe a bias kind of thing, so you have a youthful candidate and you're biased toward that person, maybe you're more accepting of what they're saying, even though initially you say, well, I really don't agree with that, but then you say, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of starting to see what they're saying, you know, so it gives them a foot in the door and it gives them a chance with you, and I think that's probably the, the real effect. Aside from a candidate's facial structure and youthfulness, other factors such as height play a role in swaying voters. According to a New York Times article on presidential physique, the taller president won over half the time. Dietetic sophomore Laura Wagner sees how physical traits like this can affect how someone votes. I believe that their politics should come first, but I do think that the way their appearance is, their height, their hair, their voices does have an impact on voters. For other students, like biochemistry and molecular biology freshman Justin Harris, looks do not play a role. We should pick presidents based on their beliefs and how they can change the country and their, the way that they can have an impact on the way that we live in this country. So while voters consider candidates' stances on political topics like balancing the deficit, Romney's full head of hair or Obama's pearly whites shouldn't be overlooked. For Impact News, I'm Carmen Scruggs. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th- thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, time. you were uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man. You sure? I mean, I can call a cab, or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home. Yeah, you know? yeah don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh, hey, text me when you get back. Okay. Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Ever. A message from 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., The Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane. In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs. An army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night, 
from 8 till 10. Sit or spit. Only on Impact 89FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. Manuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. November is almost here, and that means it's time for facial hair. Males across the nation will throw out their razors and let their whiskers grow free in honor of No Shave November. Some grow them out for philanthropic reasons, while others do it just because. But here to provide some tips and insight to beard amateurs, we welcome Kyle Mustin and Ian Walker of the Great American Fierce Beard Organization, or GAFBO, and founder of the Beardsman of MSU, Mick Haley. Welcome to Exposure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a different interview today for our Exposure audience. Um, so first, uh, I think it would be good if we talked about your individual beards a little bit. Um, how long have you each been growing your beard and why did you start? And I guess give give our audiences a descriptor. I wish I, This is one time I wish we actually were on TV so they could kind of <laughs> see what was going on. Uh, so why don't we start with Mick over here? All right. Uh, well, what I have right now is about three months worth. Um, I basically started after my sister got married this summer. My mom said, "Got to be clean shaven for that." It's the only thing I ask. Be clean shaven <laughs> for that, and you can go for it. So, uh, but yeah, I got about three months into this. Um, I'm working with just over two years. Uh, mine grows fairly slow, but it's pretty dense, and I don't know. It's it's not as fast growing as like John in our group or some other guys, but uh, but yeah, just I started growing mine just because I don't know boredom. Um, <laughs> I'd grown out a couple beards that were like a year long, and then just shaved them because one was a wedding, one was a Halloween costume, um, and this one I just decided to stick to it. For me, I, I've had some kind of a beard on and off for as long as I've been able to grow one, and I know you're the same way, Kyle. Yeah. Um, and this beard, um. I couldn't tell you because there's been enough trimming in there, but uh, like my razor or my cheeks haven't seen a razor in over two years. Um, I don't know why. I've always I've just kept doing it. Um, I earlier this year I had actually shaved my chin and my <laughs> neck, so I had so I had friendly mutton chops or a hulahi yeah, as they call it. They were um, amazing for a competition <laughs> that we had uh, actually in Muncie, Indiana, that we traveled to, and. A few months later was my sister's wedding. Mm. So for that, I had like, no, about a month after the competition. So I had about a month to grow the center back in, and so then I tapered the rest into it. And um, I was letting it go, and I have a habit of bad habit of pulling at it. Stop so it. I'm slowly working on trying to get a little more length. But mine's, mine's pretty pretty high and tight right now. But, you know. So let's talk about how do facial hair club organizations start? Uh, let's start with Gaffo. How did you guys come to be? Oh, well, it's it's a pretty interesting story. Um, we're actually a organization that was that comes out of Michigan State University. Um, our founders, there were five guys, and they just had a friendly competition um, around uh, Halloween at one year where they all just decided to grow beards. Um, one of them was growing it for a costume in particular. He wouldn't tell anyone what he was going to Who's going as Fidel Castro? <laughs> but he wouldn't tell anybody at the time. So they're all like, well, why don't we all grow beards? And it just became a friendly thing that they did uh, at least once a year, and they would do a month to a month what you'd call a sprint competition where you shave, and then at the end of it, whoever has the best beard wins. And best is really subjective. Yeah. 
And for them, they didn't really have any formal judging or categories or rules. They just went around in the bar or um, they walked through just random dorm buildings and just assault people going, who has the fiercest beard? And fierce is ambiguous. You can, and fear, right. You know. And it was just like, basically, whose beard do you like the best? Mm-hmm. And it became just a thing they did every year. And then uh, a few years later, one of the guys um, developed testicular cancer. And so they um, took pledges and did a fundraising, again, a sprint competition to help, you know, help him fund his medical bills. And he's, he's doing well now. Um, but, you know, it sort of fell by the wayside. And then a few years later, um, John, who's our current president, and uh, Dave, who's another one of the founders, decided to get it, to go, get it going as a more of a formal club. And we've just been going at it over two years now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, the club's been, well, it's been around for almost 10 now. Yeah, since their so, first competition. So. Yeah, but uh, about two plus years, three years, pretty steady and strong. And we have a new group, uh, the Beardsmen of MSU. Uh, talk a little about your founding and why you decided to start this group. All right. Well, we're just almost two weeks old. Not two years, <laughs> two weeks. Um, well, but the seed of the idea for you has to be older than that. The, the yeah. seed is older, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Back home, you know, I, I got some friends, and they're all hardworking boys, and uh, they all love to grow out their beards, and they, they, like, they like to get weird with them and stuff. So we, <laughs> you know, I, back home, I got a good group of guys that just grow beards, and it's it's pretty solid. Where's back home? That'd be up north in Harrison, okay, I was going to say, like, a youper or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. out, out in the woods, out yeah. in the woods, yeah. Um, so, but, you know, they're back home, but so I needed something here at Michigan State, you know, so... I have some buddies here, and uh, I, I'd been seeing, there's a show on IFC, it's called Whisker Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cover, whatever, regional championships, national championships, and world championships of beard contests. And so I, I'd, I'd just been seeing these guys, you know, do stuff, and um, I was like, well, all this coming together, I feel I should make a club. So see if I can, you know, drum up some interest in michigan state to Get grow some, some people beards. who want to grow some beards yeah. well it is uh no shade november and just a couple days we'll start um so what kind of advice do you guys have for people growing beards uh are there any i guess kind of grooming habits things to help with scratchiness or I, yeah i don't well, the know fir- the first trick is just to stop shaving yeah, yeah that, and it's really tough speaking. <laughs> uh, and um you asked about scratchiness honestly once you get past the point of stubble yeah. It doesn't scratch. Yeah, once I mean, once like, the hair gets long enough um, and it's not curling over, like irritating your skin, mm-hmm. then it, the itch is gone. Like my beard just hasn't itched for years now. It just it's it doesn't. I mean, once it grows out, it it itches about as much as your scalp does. I mean, yeah. so you you do get an itch occasionally or a scratch, but it's it's just hair. So um, give it a couple weeks and it will not itch. Okay. Um, Any other grooming habits? Kyle, yours is pretty long. Do you do you wash your beard? Yeah, um, I, I'm fairly. Um, I don't know. Crazy about my beard. Nah, well, I've, so it's I, I wash, I shampoo and condition it every day. Usually twice a day. Um, I've used like leave-in conditioners to keep it um, healthy and not dry out. Um, brush it multiple times a day with multiple kinds of brushes. Um, uh, for my mustache, I, I used to wax it up, so I'd use all sorts of mustache waxes or even uh, just a lot of product went into my beard. Um, 
Yeah, kind of ridiculous, but a little yeah. high maintenance. A little, there. yeah. A little bit, it's yeah. also it's also worth mentioning, like that, that Kyle, like he's not just a weird guy who showers twice a day or multiple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. He, he showers after. Kyle's a mechanic. I'm an auto mechanic, <laughs> and I go to the gym five to six days a week. So yeah, so I, I get oil, I get transmission fluid in my beard, I get fuel in my beard, gasoline. I get beard. yeah. I, I've lit my beard on fire at work before. <laughs> um, so yeah, I. I mean, as much as I don't want to stink, I also, you know, I, I really want to thoroughly clean my beard out because it gets pretty nasty almost every day. Now, you guys have mentioned um, competitions a bit. What is a competition for beard growing? What does it look like? Um, and, and you guys go to these, I guess. Give us the rundown. Okay. It's it's a weird experience for somebody who's never been to one. Um, it's an even more weird experience to run one. Yeah. Um, it's kind of surreal, actually. Um, but the first time you go to a competition, if you don't know what to expect, it's a beauty contest. I mean, it is Miss America for facial hair. I mean, it's just absurd. It's a, it's a dog and pony <laughs> show, and it's a good time. And most people in in the community will tell you that they do it because they love doing it and they love having fun. And you end up meeting so many people. Um, a, a competition, though, uh, when we host competitions, we have anywhere from uh, 7 to 17 categories, depending on the size of the competition and how many people register. I think yeah. our biggest was about 17 categories, right, Kyle? Yeah, yeah Labor Day. Do we have 17? Was that many? I, was, I mean, it was something we, I mean, like we started that. with 17, but yeah, we didn't fill all the categories. Um, right. But, um, so you'll see, and it's up to whoever puts on the competition, but you have, you know, uh, full beard, natural, which is just... Big, no styling, no, no anything. It's the heavyweight of the uh, right. of the competition. Mm-hmm. You've got um, full beard groomed, which is sort of where Kyle and I end up. Um, even though his is much longer than mine, but it's still a pretty groomed beard on occasion. Right. Um, partial beards, um, mustaches, all these things, both natural and styled, and all these combinations of these different things, as well as um, women's categories, women's fake beard categories, which are usually some of the most fun to watch because <laughs> some of them get incredibly creative. It's a lot of fun. It's also worth mentioning that, like, while we do this for fun, and it's um, very much like a social club, one of the big things for us is um, community involvement and charity work. Um, every event we've ever put on since they won, I mean, since their initial competition um, with, uh, you know, raising money for testicular cancer, um, everything we've ever done has been charity. Um, we work with uh, the uh, Greater Lansing Food Bank. We do regular can collections for them at our monthly meetings. We've done stuff with... Um, Haven House. Yeah, Haven House, yeah. in um, which is like a family shelter. Yep. Um, also, we worked with them this year, as well as working with uh, a group um, of kids out of... Uh, the Lansing Public Schools. Which middle school was? I don't even remember. Uh, it was just the Lansing Public Schools all across the board. Um, it was an exchange program to Atsu, Japan, which is Lansing's sister city, mm-hmm. um, which they've been lacking funds the last couple of years and pretty much canceled the program. And they came to us early this summer asking if we'd help them out or do something. And so, yeah, of course, it'd be great, so... We dealt with them, and uh, and Haven House was with the competition as well this year. So, yeah, proceeds from any event we do, we we help charity out with them. And uh, what else? Have we... So it's really, it's not just about beard growing. It's about, it's a, it's a community yeah. organization. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I think beard is just a nice a nice thing to tie us all together. <laughs> it's, a good, um, it's a good symbol. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, part of it's symbolic, yeah. and part of it is just like... Uh, 
how is that any less a valid reason for a club mm -hmm. than the Masons or the Lions Club or right. the Knights of Columbus? I mean, it, we're not exclusively a men's organization either. We mm -hmm. do have a lot of women, female yeah. members. Yeah. Um, beard appreciators, as I like to say. Yeah. Um, Got a lot of women in the club. Yeah, do a lot of, <laughs> and they do a lot of work. I mean, they, they're fantastic. They, they put a lot of stuff together for us. And, um, yeah, we couldn't do it without them. And make, really quick before we're running out of time, uh, you're looking at potentially having a competition this year? Yeah. Uh, um, I'd, we're, we're, we're trying to get something together uh, at the beginning of December, uh, basically to celebrate uh, the work of MSU students with their, with their beards. With for No, no Shave, Shave November. November. And um, so uh, I would just, yeah, we're, 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 we're working on it. So. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you guys all for taking the time to come in and chat today. It's been lovely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, thank, you. thank you. And that was Ian Walker, Kyle Mustin, and Mick Haley, uh, Ian and Kyle of Gaffbo, and Mick of the Beardsman of MSU. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. The impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on <laughs> The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Manuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. In light of the spooky Halloween season, Impact reporter Lindsay Benson want, went on a bit of an investigation to find out more about MSU's spookier buildings, Morell and Mary Mayo Halls. Upon further inspection, there is much more to these landmarks than their ghostly reputations. Old and unique to MSU, Filled with creaky floors and memory-stained wood, Mary Mayo and Morrill Hall are some of the most talked-about places on campus, especially during this haunting season. Many claim to have seen the ghosts of Mary Mayo while living in Mayo Hall. And for those who have visited one of the oldest buildings on campus, Morrill Hall, it would come to no surprise to most if there were some spirits lurking through the creaky, wide, and open hallways. I sat down with MSU archivist Whitney Miller, who told me how Morrill Hall came to be and just who Mary Mayo was. There was a woman called Mary Mayo who um, was the women's leader of the Michigan Grange. And she pushed the university to develop a domestic, a domestic um, arts course for the women so that they could study um, cooking and um, home management. It was more of a scientific approach to how to manage the house. And so she pushed for that. And that got introduced into the college curriculum in 1896, and uh, it was very, very popular, very popular. But well, between those couple years, 1896 um, and when Morrill Hall was built, um, there was a lot of women on campus, more than there ever had been, and there wasn't a really good place to house the women. 
um, women were housed off campus or in uh, little pockets of them were here and there. And they really needed a building for the women. So they built what we know today as Morrill Hall. There's no doubt Mary Mayo was a prominent woman figure in MSU's history. But what she may be known for best is the stories of her hauntings at Mary Mayo Hall. While there is no confirmed truth to these ghostly allegations, the fact that Mary Mayo died 28 years before the building was even built leaves Miller speculative as to whether she actually wanders those halls. The most common ghost stories I've heard is the ones about Mary, the Mary, Mary Mayo, and it's... It seems highly unlikely that that would be the case, um, considering the history of, of the building, but um, never know. <laughs> <laughs> Though those with similar opinions to Miller's might call this story more the haunting of Mary Mayonnaise and a bunch of baloney, Mary Mayo did pass through the halls of Morrill Hall when she was alive. And while these haunting stories may provide frights and goosebumps, there may be nothing scarier than coming to the realization that Morrill Hall will soon be demolished due to its unstable wooden structure and the outstanding costs it would take to keep it alive. African history professor Peter Allegi recounts some of the more haunting times he spent in Morrill Hall over the years. When I've been here sometimes late at night, I've never encountered any hauntings. Uh at all. Uh, we do sometimes hear uh, uh, strange sounds, but I don't think it's from any uh, ghosts. Sophomore Catherine Coleman, though saddened by losing this piece of MSU's history, understands it may be in the best interest for all. Well, if it's unsafe, then yeah, tear it down. <laughs> Even though I set out looking for ghost stories, ghosts or no, one thing for sure is MSU holds a fascinating history in all areas of its campus and departments. And whether you believe in these tales or you think it's as bogus as MSU's parking tickets, these stories will be passed on to incoming Spartans for many years to come. For Impact News, I'm Lindsay Benson. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.